The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. Today's reading comes from Psalm 120. In my distress I called to the Lord, and He answered me. Deliver me, O Lord, from lying lips, from a deceitful tongue. What more? What shall be given to you, and what more shall be done to you, you deceitful tongue? A warrior's sharp arrows with glowing coals of the broom tree. Woe to me that I sojourn in Meshech, that I dwell among the tents of Kedar. Too long have I had my dwelling among those who hate peace. I am for peace, but when I speak, they are for war. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you so much, Emily. Hello, everybody, and welcome to what I hope will be my last sermon ever in my entire lifetime uh, given to a virtually empty sanctuary speaking through a camera. That is my prayer. Lord, hear our prayer. Uh, as you hopefully uh, have either seen on the Christ Press website or received in an email, uh, Sunday, June the 7th, that's a week from today, uh, we will begin phasing in gathered worship again. And what that means is all three of our locations of Christ Presbyterian will be open uh, for gathered worship. It also means we will continue to offer the full online worship service, but this time for all three locations. And so whatever location you're part of, if you're part of the group that doesn't feel ready to come back to gathered worship uh, for whatever reason, uh, you will be able to worship with the congregation that you are part of uh, online uh, as, as desired until you feel ready as well to come back to gathered worship. But again, June 7th, uh, all the details are there on the website, and uh, there's a Q&A uh, about how that will all play out that's also available. It's, it's in video form. You can find that at ChristPres.org. And uh, we just can't wait to see you. I have been homesick, uh, and more so every single week homesick for my church family. And just hearing from so many of you through emails and texts and phone calls, uh, I know that there are many, 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 many people in our church family that are homesick. And uh, if you haven't been part of our church family up to this point, but have been dialing in because you didn't have a church home and you're from Nashville, we hope to see you here as well. We hope to meet you. We hope to meet you on June 7th. Uh, come. You're welcome to, uh, to be part of us. That's part of why we exist, is to continue to welcome new uh, people into our community. And so you, I, I just hope you'll, you'll uh, not be reluctant at all, but, but, but be just as eager as the rest of us are to get back to, to worship together. And so those things being said, uh, today is the day that we begin a new series on the Psalms of ascent. That is uh, Psalms 120 through 134. And uh, these are psalms, as timing would have it, for people who are homesick for church. Imagine that. 
All these psalms for people who are homesick for church. The ascent that these psalms speak of, uh, most scholars believe, uh, have to do with the three annual festivals where the scattered Jewish people, the scattered Israelites, return to Jerusalem where where the central temple is located on a hill. And they ascend the hill to be at the house of the Lord, in the Lord's presence, with the Lord's people. Those three festivals were Passover, Pentecost, and Yom Kippur, or the Day of Atonement. Uh, But Israel was scattered. They were away from Jerusalem, most of them. And the temple represented... Uh, An oasis, gathered worship, represented an oasis from a world that they had been experiencing as a harsh world and as a violent world and as a world that is full of outrage and even hatred. Uh, Even in this very first psalm, uh, the first word is, I am in distress. The last word of this psalm is, war. And in the middle of distress and war are statements like there is lying, there is deceit, there is violence, there are people out here who hate peace. And this is why the people of God are longing for the oasis of the body, of the people of God to gather with before the face of God for healing. Last night... As I went to bed, I made the mistake of looking at the headlines. Always a mistake right before bedtime, especially for somebody who struggles with insomnia. First headline read this, an avalanche of evictions could be bearing down on America's renters. The second headline said this, China and India move troops as the border tensions escalate. There's another headline that I'll get to in a second, but first, uh, as many of you know, if you are uh, in the email database for Christ Presbyterian Church, and you can get in there by, by just clicking the button, sign up for email list right there on the website if you don't receive those emails, but if you are on the, that email list and you're part of our church community, you will get an email from me on your birthday letting you know that I prayed for you and I do pray for every person by name on their birthday on those dates and I invite you to respond back to me with any other prayer requests you might have and this is how one pastor can stay hopefully meaningfully in touch with 3,500 or so congregants and uh, just a couple of days ago, one of the, one of the congregants that I, that on his birthday responded to me, just pray that we will all get our lives back. Pray that we'll get our church back. Pray that we'll get uh, our jobs back. Pray that we'll get our community back. Pray that we will get our lives back. I'm ready to leave this current situation. I'm so tired of this current situation. And then there are others who aren't asking for their old life back, but they're asking for the life that they've never had. And this was represented in the third headline before I went to bed, which said, anger and hopelessness follow the death of George Floyd. George, George Floyd, you, you may know, is uh, the man in 
Minneapolis, African-American man, uh, probably a little bit older than me, maybe about 10 years older than me, uh, was being pinned down uh, by the knee and the full body weight of a police officer. And he was crying out, I can't breathe, I can't breathe, I can't breathe, I want my mother. This is a man who was about 60 years old crying out for his mother. And the officer wouldn't let up and he died later that afternoon, and it just became the latest of a string of many, many stories of people of color being uselessly and mercilessly discarded. I reached out to several of my African-American friends, and three of them are pastors, and here's what they said. The first pastor said, it looked like the police officer was actually enjoying it. I'm done with this. I'm done with my daughter coming into the room every time there is one of these stories and asking me again and again, Dad, why do people hate us? Why do people hate us? Another pastor sends me a text and it says this, all this hate and murder for black people is beyond exhausting. I'm sickened to my stomach, afraid for myself and my children and my wife because I am considered a threat by virtue of the color of my skin. Another black pastor texted to me, it has become exhausting to be a black man in America. I hope that our white friends will someday understand and empathize. These are all representative of things that the psalmist talks about. And these things, I think, uh, will need to be summarized just because I'm limited in time today under three headings as usual. And the headings today are these. Evil is real. The distress that evil creates is a gift. To some. And then finally, the ascent to the top of the hill is worthwhile, and it is an uphill grind. So first, evil is real. And because evil is real, we need honest songs to name it for what it is. You know, Kevin Twitt, uh, who's part of our Christ Pres community, works with college students at Belmont, has for years, and has also you know, led a movement for many years of, 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 of revitalizing old hymns, many of them put to their ancient melodies, many of them put to new ones. But one thing that Kevin is very passionate for the church to understand is how important it is for us to help our people sing honest songs. Songs like the Psalms themselves that give expression to the full range of human emotion celebration, joy, laughter, feasting, as well as lament, anger, infuriated feelings, and even despair. This is part of why I'm so excited to have Nathan Tasker leading us in music, liturgy, and the arts moving forward. Nate is a man who suffered. He has suffered. He has walked with God in hard times. I don't know if you've had a chance to listen to the interview 
uh, with him and Andy Osinga where he tells some of his stories, but I, would but I would highly encourage you to do that. This is a man who has walked uh, through the valleys himself with the Lord, and, 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 and we need that kind of leadership to help us walk through the valley too and to sing honest songs, to sing songs of joy and songs of lament and everything in between. We need pastors uh, who can help us be honest as well. We need women's ministry leaders and have women's ministry leaders that can help us do these things as well. We need people who hel are helping us engage our community, who can help us speak honestly and name honestly the full range of the human experience, which includes the reality that evil is real. You know, in the movie Shadowlands, which depicts C.S. Lewis's grief as his wife Joy dies from a violent form of cancer, after her death, uh, there's a conversation between C.S. Lewis and a friend of his, and the friend says to him, well, at least you have your faith. At least you still have your faith. You can look on the bright side. There's still a silver lining. You've still got your faith. And Lewis responds to his friend, no. There is no at least about this. This is an awful mess, and that's all there is to it. Are we willing to be that honest about how we feel? You know, Job, as he's going through crisis, begins to vent his feelings, and we see the men who become what are known now as his miserable counselors trying to shut him down, trying to silence his verbalization of how hard and excruciating life can be in this world. In the end of the story, God rebukes not Job for lashing out about his struggle, but he rebukes Job's counselors for treating wounds lightly, for saying peace, peace, when there is no peace. And that's where the psalmist goes here. The psalmist says in verses 6 and 7, the world hates peace. I am for peace, but the world hates peace. He's what you could call a holy complainer. And why is his complaining holy? Because he's acknowledging that the world oftentimes is not working the way it's supposed to work. There's an ache. There's a groan that Romans chapter 8 talks about. All creation is groaning that groan. We are groaning that groan. We're longing for Eden, which is where we come from. A world where we lived in perfect harmony with God and, and, and each other and, and creation itself. We long for the world we're headed for. That Revelation 21 describes as a place where there will be no more death, no more mourning, no more crying, no more pain. The old order of things will have passed away. Everything will have been made new. We long for life as it's supposed to be and so we complain in holy ways. This is wrong. Or again, as Sandra McCracken says in that brilliant, brilliant lyric, this is not okay. And so I know this is not the end. One of his main complaints, the psalmist, is this. People can be like murder hornets. Have you read about the murder hornets? Google it. It's awful. Two-inch hornets have now made it to America, and their sole purpose for existence is to raid beehives, decapitate the bees, and carry the bees' bodies to their children for food. 
It's violent. It's as if this psalm is saying the same thing. People are just like those hornets. Decapitating each other. Hating peace. In favor of war. Wanting war. He says in the fifth verse, Woe to me that I sojourn in Meshach, that I dwell in the tents of Kedar. Now Meshach and Kedar, these are people groups on Israel's borders who have no room for God in their lives. And because they have no room for God in their lives, oftentimes they have no room for things like mercy, no room for things like justice, no room for things like neighbor love and compassion. They are for war. They hate peace. Culture of outrage, you might call it. Does that sound familiar? A culture of us against them. Cancel culture. Does that sound familiar? The problem is as old as time. Eugene Peterson says this about Meshach and Kedar. Both had barbaric reputations. They represent the strange and the hostile. Paraphrased, Peterson writes, the psalmist's cry is, I live in the midst of hoodlums and wild savages. This world is not my home, and I want out. I want the life I've never had. You know, there's a popular song, and I realize that there may some, be somebody in our church community that's, that's involved with the production of that song, maybe played on that song, um, and, 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 and uh, I pray and, and hope that you will forgive me for uh, challenging the premise of the song. But it's a song that's called Most People Are Good. It's a catchy tune. It's uplifting. And it's partially true. The lyric goes, I believe most people are good. Luke Bryan sings it really well. Uh, and if you go all the way back to Genesis chapter 2, you, 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 you might even get a theological basis for that statement. That when God created Adam and Eve, he looked on what he'd, he'd made and who he had made and he declared it was very good. That included them. They were very good aspects of God's creation. And then Genesis 3 happened where Adam and Eve sought independence from God. And then violence came into the picture. Blame shifting us against them, enmity. Eve said, well, the serpent made me do it. And Adam said, well, Eve made me do it. And, and actually, it's your fault because you're the one, God, who gave Eve to me. The woman that you gave me made me eat that forbidden fruit, or she tempted me to eat that forbidden fruit. Everybody's shifting blame. Everybody's pointing the finger. It's us against them since the beginning of time, and things haven't changed. We hate peace. We are for war in our hearts. And then Genesis 4, Cain murders his brother Abel, more violence. And then chapter 6, the flood happens. Remember Noah's Ark, why did the flood happen? Because God said there is so much violence in the world. It says in Genesis 6, 5 that by that time, the Lord saw how, wick, how, how, how great man's wickedness on the earth had become and that every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time. So no, most people aren't good. In fact, Romans chapter 3 says there's no one good, not even one. We've all become corrupt to the core. And yet, there's still a ring of truth in the song. 
that we come from goodness and we're destined for goodness in the new heaven and the new earth. At our very core, at the very core of what it means to be human created in the image of God is to still have the seeds and undertones of what it means to be a very good aspect and part of God's creation. We're the crown of God's creation still, Psalm 8 tells us. And so the song is true and yet it stands in tension with these realities of the curse. One scholar said this, war is man's chief legacy. War is our chief legacy. And in case there are doubters to that statement, it's true of ancient culture, Egypt, Babylon, Syria, Assyria, Phoenicia. The Encyclopedia Britannica reported long ago that there have been, that there were 78 wars between the year 1480 and the end of World War II. 78 wars. And then since or then in 1967, U.S. News and World Report reported that since World War II, at least 12 more war wars broke out in the world, 39 political assassinations, 48 personal revolts, 74 rebellions for independence, 1,162 social revolutions. That was written in 1967. In the year 1968, I was born. I was actually born three days after Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., was shot to death on April 4th. My parents have told me the story since the day I was born that there were riots in the street as they were driving me home from the hospital because of that event. Since then, there's been more war. There's been more division. There's been more outrage. And so the story goes. It continues to be our legacy. We are violent people. We hate peace. We love war. We will find anything to complain about, anything to grumble about. It's as old as time. The Israelites grumbled into the desert. Paul is addressing in his letters constantly the grumbling that's happening in the, the early church. Jesus is constantly getting after his disciples for grumbling at each other. It's not what we're made for. And that's why we're so tired. We're so tired of the outrage. We're so tired of the cancel culture. We're so tired of us against them. We're so tired of hostility and blame shifting. We're tired because we're not made for it. But the distress that all this evil creates can serve as a gift because it triggers some people, people whose hearts are sensitive to such things, it triggers the pursuit of God. You see that the psalm says, I seek my help in God in light of these things. It's almost as if he's saying that distress is a smelling salt for the soul that wakes us up from a stupor. C.S. Lewis talked about this when he talked about pain. He says, pain insists on being attended to. He says, God whispers to us in our pleasures, but he shouts to us in our pain. And that pain is God's megaphone to rouse a deaf world. The psalmist is right there. He uses these words in verse 6. Too long. It's been too long living among people who hate peace. This is a holy form of impatience. It's like he's saying, you know, like the, like the African-American pastor, you know, who said, I'm done. I'm, 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 I'm tired. I'm exhausted. 
bearing the burden of what it means to be a black man in our time. The psalmist is saying similar things. I've had it. I'm fed up. It's been too long. As the little river band said, now that my life is so rearranged, I know that it's time for a cool change. Time for a cool change. In my distress, the psalmist says, I called out to the Lord, deliver me, O Lord. And then what happened? The Lord answered me, he says. The Lord answered. These words too long at least imply the possibility that there had been times and seasons when the psalmist had called on other things to be the answer to his woes, to his worries, to his problems. Not until he was in distress did he call out to God. Maybe that's why they say there are no atheists in foxholes. We all find that moment of crisis to pray, God, are you there? God, I actually do know you exist, even though I've been denying that you exist. Those prayers come in times of crisis. And that's a good thing. Those triggers are good things. Better to be miserable in the hands of God than happy outside the hands of God. Better to be restless inside the hands of God than at peace outside the hands of God. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they all tell the story of a bleeding woman. And it says that this woman had spent years and years and her entire life savings on the latest healthcare solution to her hemophilia. And yet she was never able to find a cure. And finally, as sort of a last-ditch effort, she positions herself where Jesus is passing by and she reaches out and it says she touches the hem of his garment. And that's all it takes for the power to go out of Jesus and into her and she's healed on the spot. Now this is not at all to say that seeking health care is indicative of a lack of faith. I mean, after all, one of the people who told this story was Luke, who was professionally a physician. He was a doctor. He was a health care professional. What, what, what this story tells us and what the psalm tells us is this, however, there is a healer, capital H, behind all healers and all forms of healing. And that healer with a capital H is Jesus, who is known in the scriptures as the great physician, who came not for the healthy, but for the sick, who came not for those who think they're righteous, but for those who know they are sinners. And he came not to be our last resort, but our first resort. And sometimes our pain is what awakens us to that reality that he must be our first resort in all things, especially distress. One of our church elders, Tom Douglas, is a wonderful songwriter, and he wrote a song for a band called Lady Antebellum called I Run to You. The lyrics, some of the lyrics go this way. This world keeps spinning faster to a new disaster, so I run to you. I run to you, baby. And when it all starts coming undone, baby, you're the only one I run to. I run to you. 
I can't help but listen to those lyrics and, and think of them as a pointer to Jesus. What are you running to during this time of economic stress, of health scares? Are you running to career or economic security in this time of uncertainty and distress? Are you running to the hope of a rapid V-curve recovery? Is that where you're pinning your hopes? Are you, are you running to a vaccine? And now, quick. Those things are all good things. They would all be wonderful if they happened. But if you have those things without having the hem of Jesus' garment, it's only a matter of time before you're in another crisis and before you're flat on your face again. So if you get my weekly devotional, where I do a little video devotional every week, um, this past week I talked about a dynamic that I, I recently discovered on, on the walks that I take uh, uh, each day during this season in our neighborhood. And I've noticed this about me that I spend about 90% of my time walking in our beautiful neighborhood looking at the concrete looking at the ground. And when I look at the concrete, when I look at the ground, what I see is cracks, stains, weeds, sewers, potholes, and I'm reminded that I have bad feet. I have tendonitis in both of my feet. And I'm reminded of that when I, when I walk like this. But then I spend about 10% of my time actually looking up and when I look up, I see things like this. I hope the camera can catch it. I see beautiful landscape and trees. I see a beautiful sky, more trees, more sky, more sky, more sky. When I turn my eyes away from what man has created that's falling apart and look up to what God has created that, that, that's just as intact as it was in the very beginning, not only this, the sky is decorated with birds and colors and the birds are carefree and they're happy and they're glorious and the trees are plush. Reminds me of the next psalm that we'll be covering next week when we gather again for the first time in a while. The 121st psalm that says, I lift my eyes to the hills. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. You see, because when, when we spend 90% of the time looking at the ground, it fuels anxiety. Because looking at the ground fuels memory of our problems, and it, and it stirs anxiety about how we're going to fix those problems. It stirs our anxiety about the evil in the world. But when we look up, when we behold the glory that God has made, we're reminded that, wait a minute, he's in control of all things. He will hold me fast. He will hold me fast. For my Savior loves me so. He will hold me fast. You know, Robert Murray McShane, the great preacher, said, for every one look you take at yourself, or put differently, for every one look you take at the ground, take ten looks at the sky. Take ten looks at Jesus for every one look you take at yourself. I have this reversed on my neighborhood walks. And because of this, my problems feel big and Jesus feels small on those walks. But, it, but what if I reversed it? What if I spent 90% of the time looking at God's sky 
And 10% looking at the ground, we, we shouldn't ignore our problems, but maybe 10% of the time looking there. Maybe it would reverse the effect where God would be big and, and, and my problems would seem doable or at least livable in light of how big God is. A lot of it's about perspective. The Psalms of Ascent are about lifting our eyes to the hills, which brings me to the last thought, that the ascent is a worthwhile and also an uphill grind. Even Nietzsche talked about what he called a long obedience in the same direction. You know, Nathan Tasker uh, cited a, a thought from that book in his remarks earlier in the service but here's, what, here's how Nietzsche continued. A long obedience in the same direction that in the long run becomes something which has make, made life worth living. In other words, what he's saying is there's a certain kind of daily grind that is valuable that will enable us to look back on our lives and see that it was a life worth living. Peterson continues the thought uh, in his book. He says this, there's a great market for religious experience in our world. There is little enthusiasm, however, for the patient acquisition of virtue, little inclination to sign up for a long apprenticeship in what earlier generations of Christians called holiness. In other words, holiness cannot come to us through a microwave. It comes through a crock pot. Holiness is not formed by watching a fireworks display from the valley. Holiness is formed by taking a sojourn to the top of the hill. You know, on my walks in the neighborhood, there are a lot of hills. And the hills, one hill in particular looks ominous. When I approach it at the bottom and I look up and I look at the entire hill, I'm like, oh no, I just do not feel like I can climb this. Maybe some of you graduated from the University of Tennessee and you, you went out hiking every now and then to Mount LeConte and you remember how ominous that mountain is. But the sojourn, the mountain becomes less ominous when we take, when we take the climb in sections rather than approach it as a whole. And on my neighborhood walks, I've got my mailbox. I'm saying when I get to that mailbox, that's my goal right now. And then once I get to the mailbox, the next one is when I get to that tree. And then when I get to that tree, it's when I get to that, that house with you know, the, you know, the, the SUV always parked under the basketball court. And when I get to that house, I get to the bush. And then when I get to the bush, I can make it to the top of the hill. That's how life is meant to work. A long, methodical, day-to-day, sometimes mundane obedience in the same direction, step by step by step by step. God doesn't call upon us to tackle all of our problems at once, how overwhelming that would be. He calls us to a life of faithful steps. In good times and bad times, in the smooth seasons and in the hard seasons, keep going in the same direction with that long, methodical, step-by-step obedience. You know, one of, uh, one of our 
church members has gone to be with the Lord several years ago and uh, he came down with a disease that essentially took all of his strength away and it, and it put him in a wheelchair and it, it, it withered him down uh, to probably half of his body weight before he died. And every time I visited him, I visited him several times, he was always so remarkably joyful. He was very realistic about the pain and he spoke about it honestly. But there was also this settled peace about him. He was not somebody who hated peace. He was somebody who experienced it even in his darker years. And one day I asked him, what is it that you would say is the source of your joy? And here's what he said. You, know, you want to know what he said? Long obedience in the same direction. He says, I've been a Bible reader every day of my life for almost 50 years. I've been a churchgoer every Sunday of my life for almost 60 years. I think those two practices over and over and over again are what have prepared me for this season of my life and, and are what, what have made me into a man who can experience and taste joy. This is a man who ascended to the hill where Jesus is and where the people of God are every week and even every day with an open Bible. He spent 90% of his walk looking up. So he had the resources and the oxygen when his life was shoved down to the concrete. It became not only manageable, but an environment where joy was possible. What does a Christian see when a Christian looks up to the hills? Jesus. Jesus who descended who came from glory to be one of us and to walk among us so that he could also ascend to the Jerusalem hill, not to be together with the people of God, but to be abandoned by the people of God and the people that he created. Jesus ascended to the hill outside of Jerusalem to the cross at Calvary. And there he was gutsy honest he said, I thirst. When he was thirsty, he cried out to God, why have you forsaken me when he felt forsaken? But it was also there that he had the fortitude and for the joy set before him to give away a gutsy love, praying things like, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And saying things like he said to the thief on the cross, today, sir, you will be with me in paradise. Your best days, if you can believe it, are still ahead of you even as you hang on this cross dying right next to me. When that's what we see, when we lift our eyes to the hills, when that's who we see, when we lift our eyes to the hills, why would we waste our time taking 90% of our time looking at concrete when the sky is right there above us? Let's pray together. I lift my eyes to the hills. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. Thanks be to God. Lord, hear our songs now as we sing. Make them honest songs that come from our hearts. 
In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.